Hi, everybody. It's good to be together, to worship God together, and to hear the word. Uh, first thing I want to do is uh, do a shout out to a couple of uh, podrisoners that are, are, have, have traveled here. Almost every week we get folks, uh, part of our podrisoner community, uh, come and visit us. So Christine Lodgson and family are here from Kentucky. Welcome, you guys. And Mike and Amy Foreman are up from the great state of Texas. God bless you guys. But so far as I know, the Commuter Award will go to Glenn Parks, who is here from India. He's a missionary in India. So, God bless you, Glenn. And for those who are here visiting, uh, listeners that we don't know about, sorry, but we bless you too. Um, let us know when you're coming, and we can uh, do a little shout-out for you. I um, also want to give a thanks to uh, uh, Brianna and Seth uh, over the last couple of weeks, doing such a great job delivering the Word, didn't they? Fantastic. Uh, gave a chance for me. I've been freed up a little bit to, uh, for this season to pour into the broader movement, this kingdom movement, this beautiful thing that's happening around the globe. People getting a vision of a Jesus-looking God and Jesus-looking people. And uh, so I'm uh, continuing to finish, finish the very final touches of this book, uh, but also doing a lot of networking stuff. I know it. I know it. <laughs> I've been saying that for four years. But really, this time it's getting very, very close. And... Um, uh, Help having to network this thing. On that note, I want to say this, and this is primarily for parishioners, but maybe some folks here it will land on as well. Uh, we get asked uh, about every other week um, from folks who like can be pastors who got the kingdom vision and they're no longer a fit for their church, uh, or can be just uh, people who are out there in an area where they don't have any kind of church that's kingdom-minded that they feel they can align with. And they ask the question, what do we do? If they can't go to seminary, they don't think seminary would do any good. Uh, they want to get some training on, on how do you start a church in your house? Uh, how, how do you plan a church? And that just isn't, isn't about starting a uh, weekend service with a band or something. It, it's about building a community. Well, we, we have now um, a, a church planners conference that will be happening this fall. It'll be September 21st to the 25th. It's held in Chicago. And um, I'll be speaking at it, and we're going to have some other folks uh, speaking at this thing. And just do some training on how do you start a church. A kingdom church. Uh, it's hosted by Ecclesia, which is this marvelous network of kingdom-minded churches. Um, and so if, if you're interested in this, just Google this. Genesis Ecclesia Church Planning Training. I could give you the actual address, but then you got to do the hyphens and colons and all that other stuff. And who can remember that? It's Genesis Ecclesia. Google that, and uh, you'll, you'll find out about it. You can register for it. And it's going to be a, a great time for those who are interested in church planning or just curious about it, or maybe who have just been looking for some training because they already know that that's what they're supposed to do. All right? We're, we are in the last message of the Twisted Scripture series this summer. Um, and the one that I am going to be speaking on is, um, well, it's been twisted, as we'll see here in a little bit, but mainly it's just weird. It is a weird, weird story. Um, and so, a warning here, uh, this message will be on the weirdo meter factor, probably up there in a 9 or 10, which I know is very unusual for me, isn't it? Okay, so it's 9 or 10. It's, gonna be, it's just kind of weird. Uh, it's the story of the Nephilim. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, you know, here we go. <laughs> so, there, see, here's the thing. There's some weirdness around this Nephilim thing, especially these days. There's a lot of scuttlebutt going on about the Nephilim. Uh, for those of you who don't know, well, now you're going to be informed. Um, and and uh, it's, a, it's, it's a rather esoteric, odd kind of thing. It's about these, well, you'll see here in a moment. Uh, it comes out of Genesis 6. Verses 1 through 7. And this is heading into the flood story. Uh, and the author is giving this account here to kind of explain why the flood happened. 
Here's what we read. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and the daughter and daughters were born to them. I love that response. Oh my goodness. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Uh, and so here are the sons of God who were these fallen angels. They just decided whatever women they wanted and apparently materialized. And when it says they married them, it's probably just a euphemism for having sex with them. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. So here's the thing. God's spirit is always present in every human being, in every culture, at every time. And he's contending with them. He's always trying to move them in the direction of goodness, godliness, all that. And, and contending with sin and evil and, and uh, trying to free people up from that. He's contending with them. But if there ever comes a point where his, um, he sees that it's hopeless, that hearts are hard, too hardened, the more he actually contends with them, the stronger they get at resisting him. At that point, God has no choice but to withdraw his spirit. And this is always what judgment looks like in the Bible. He withdraws his spirit. And see, this is in the beginning, God created the, 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 the earth by separating the waters Remember, in the ancient Near Eastern world, water is never just about H2O. It's, it stands for forces of evil that always want to uh, devour the earth. They're forces of destruction. So God is always holding forces of destruction at bay, mercifully protecting people from the consequences of their sin. But when he sees that that is no longer possible, it's no longer working, it's actually backfiring, he withdraws. With a grieving heart, he withdraws. And then the forces of chaos come in. In this case, it, it undoes creation. Please drop your cell phones at the present time. Okay. So um, it's, then it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children with them. They were the heroes of old. Note no, not this phrase. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And the, law, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. So we had sunk to the lowest level we could sink to. So the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I pray you to anoint this word, infuse it with your authority to build the kingdom in our hearts and mind. I pray for our parishioners, God, that you'll be doing the same for them. Um, Lord, let it be a, a moment of instruction, but also one that where you confront all you need to confront, uh, tear down walls that need to be torn down, uh, free your people to be the kingdom of people you've called them to be, open our eyes to ways in which our lives are compromised, um, and empower us to change, to manifest your character in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So I'm first going to just talk about who these Nephilim were. I'll then uh, talk about two ways in which I think this passage has been twisted. And then I'm going to draw out a lesson that I think we're supposed to learn uh, from, from this. Uh, the, the question of who the Nephilim are depends on uh, who you think the sons of God are. Now, throughout most of church history, in fact, in the early church it was a uniform view, pe- people saw the sons of God as being uh, fallen angels. Um, and the Nephilim were sort of hybrids who were born of them. Then in the 4th century, my good old buddy St. Augustine came along. And, and see, he was a Platonist, of, I believe in the teachings of Plato. And, and Plato, in Plato's philosophy, spirit and matter can't ever mix. They're two different, on two different uh, ontological planes. And so St. Augustine didn't think that angels could ever cohabitate with human women. And so he proposed a different interpretation. 
interpretation. In this interpretation, the sons of God refer to the righteous lineage of Seth. Seth was the third born of the, uh, Adam and Eve. And the daughters of humans were uh, the wicked descendants of Cain. And the reason God was upset was because the righteous lineage was commingling with the wicked lineage. And in time, the righteous lineage would have been wiped out. That's according to St. Augustine. And that's been very influential throughout church history. And there are many people who hold that today. And I would humbly submit to you that that interpretation has got absolutely nothing going for it. <laughs> uh, for one thing, I mean, there's a lot of things I can say about it, but I'll just say this. Uh, we, we don't know much about angels. Yeah, if, despite the fact that there's billions of books written on angels, we really don't know squat about angels. We know next to nothing about them. So we don't know what they can do, what they can do. Uh, we just kind of have to look and, and observe. We, we don't know ahead of time what they can and can't do. But one thing we know they can do is appear like humans. So it says this in Hebrews. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So apparently, angels can appear like humans. Uh, They can take human form. They can materialize as flesh. And if they can do that, well, then they can apparently do what humans do, including having sex. So there you go. And that's kind of a strange thought. Think about next time you're on a bus next next to a stranger, that could be an angel. So you better be nice. All right. Be hospitable. The other thing is, why would the author identify the daughters of human? If, if they're just the wicked descendants of Cain, why would he say the daughters of humans? Because the daughters of the righteous lineage are also daughters of humans. So there's not, nothing distinct about that. You only say they're daughters of humans if you're contrasting it with something else. In this case, it's contrasting with the son of, sons of God, who apparently aren't just human. They are, they are angelic figures. But they're not positive angelic figures. They're nasty angelic figures. They're fallen angels. Uh, and that's why their union creates, creates these unusual beings called Nephilim. Now, the word Nephilim, the root of it, it it's somewhat disputed, but it means something like uh, marvelous ones, or it can also mean fallen ones. And it, I actually think it might mean both. It might have the connotations of both. And here's why. It fits the context. The author says, these Nephilim here that I'm talking about, these are the men of renown, the heroes of old, these mighty warriors. And he's not saying that he thinks that they should be renowned and that they're heroes, but he's saying these are the ones that are widely known as being men of renown, uh, valiant warriors, ones known as, as, as marvelous. Now what's interesting to me anyways, is that we find all over the place throughout history and otherwise different cultures stories of ancient warriors who were half human and half divine. And because humans have tended to worship power and strength, they're often regarded in a positive light. These ancient warriors, they're marvelous ones, these, these, these mighty heroes. All over the place we find this. For example, in ancient Greece, Hesoid and Homer and other ancient mythologists uh, tell stories about this race of gigantists. They're called Gigantus. And they were the offspring of the sky god Uranus and the earth goddess Gaia. And it was their way of saying they're of the earth, but they're also of heaven. They're half human and half divine. And Gigantus were these powerful, super large uh, beings. And by the way, this is because all these stories, or many of them have these ancient words as being, having supernatural height, they're giants. Um, and because, we'll see here a little bit later on, in Numbers 13, the author applies the term Nephilim to these very tall people. That's why throughout the Jewish and Christian tradition, uh, they've assumed that the Nephilim were giants. And I think it's a pretty reasonable assumption. And so in, in Homer and Hesod, uh, these gigantes, these, these giants, they're super powerful, they're super strong, they're super tall, uh, they're valiant, they're brave, and they're so, 
such warriors that they actually take on the gods of Mount Olympus. And, they, and they're trying to get control of the cosmos from the gods of Olympus, which is another theme that you find popping up in these different cultures. And they almost did it, except that the gods convinced Hercules to fight on their half. And you know Hercules. Well, Hercules came in. Even the Nephilim couldn't stand up to Hercules. And so goes the story. And so we find variations of the story. Uh, they also talk about the mighty titans, uh, these ancient warriors who are half, got, half human and half divine. But they're portrayed in a positive light. And this is what we find throughout all these different cultures. Uh, in Nordic culture, Celtic culture, South American culture, uh, India, Egyptian, all over the place we find these stories of these mighty warriors. And they're, they're, they're different in many respects. At the core is this idea of, of un, uh, unusual beings uh, that were more than just human. What the author is saying here then is this. All those stories you hear about, and see, this is the thing. How do you explain that? How do you explain this commonality? The same is true of the flood story. Uh, we find all over the place, even more than with the giants, flood stories in all these different cultures. Uh, and the author is saying all those stories of those marvelous ones, it, 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 this is what I'm talking about. It all comes back to this. And that is, I think, the most probable explanation for why this is such a widely shared thing. As time goes on from generation to generation, the story gets passed on over the centuries, and it's like the telephone game. It gets distorted, and it gets more and more fanciful, uh, and, and every culture puts its own unique twist on it. But uh, at the core, it's, it's, it's speaking about this weird, bizarre thing that happened uh, just prior to the flood, when these fallen sons of God uh, materialized and had sexual relationships with the daughters of humans and beget these hybrid beings, these mutant beings, these unnatural giants. And see, the author puts it in, just in front of the flood story to explain why God had to take such drastic measures as withdrawing his spirit and then allowing forces, chaotic forces, to submerge the earth. It's really the undue creation. Uh, God saw that every thought of every human heart, save one, was, was, was wicked, was evil. Evil. And the only one who wasn't like that was Noah. And because of this fallen state that people were in, this total state of total depravity, they opened the door for these fallen angelic beings to now materialize and have these relationships with them and beget these Nephilim. And what's going on here really is that the fallen angels are in the process of genetically engineering humans out of existence. Uh, they're altering humanity. They're watering down the DNA and genetically engineering us out of existence. Um, and they can do so because they can pick and choose whoever they want, as the, the text says. And these Nephilim are much stronger than ordinary humans. And so God saw that his whole plan for humanity was on the verge of being derailed. He was down to his last man, literally. And so God had to, with a grieving heart, salvage all he could salvage. That's what the ark is all about. And, uh, and then start over with the human project. So it really, this flood story isn't so much a, a story of God's wrath being poured out, though it certainly is a judgment. But what it mainly is, is a story of a desperate rescue mission. God salvaging his plan for humanity and to get it back on track. Okay, so that's the story of the Nephilim leading up to the flood. Now, this story's been twisted, I think, in two ways. The first way is just this. Um, and this is probably what evoked the response. Oh, my goodness. Please don't talk about that. Um, this story is only a couple of verses in the Bible, and yet it has been twisted, uh, woven into conspiracy theories that are wild and crazy, and just, especially in the last 10 to 15 years. It's like there's been an explosion of books and videos 
on the Nephilim. Oh, yes, yes. It's just crazy. Um, so here's a sampling of a few of the books. It's the tip of the iceberg. The Nephilim and the Pyramid of the Apocalypse. Yes, there's a connection between those ancient giants and those pyramids and the coming of the end of the world. If you can't connect the dots, well, you need to get this book. All right. Uh, Nephilim Stargates. I love this one. The year 2012 and the return of the Watchers. Some of you were probably aware that leading up to 2012, there's all of this mayhem about the end of the world. Because on the Mayan calendar, uh, the world was supposed to end in 2012. And all of a sudden, I guess the Mayan calendar has a lot of credibility to people. And so everyone was talking about the end of the world. Well, here's this book. Yes, end of the world and the coming of the Watchers and the Nephilim and be very scared. I imagine the book sales have dropped considerably since 2012. On the, tri- here, on the trial of the Nephilim, new archaeological research, all these photos showing giant skeletons. And the books of Enoch, the angels, the watchers of the Nephilim, and the rise and the fall of the Nephilim, and the Nephilim question, the Nephilim agenda, exposing the ultimate last day's deception. Uh, ooh. I, it, it goes on and on. I mean, I, this is hundreds of books like this. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of, of, of fictional books on the Nephilim. I didn't know this till this week when I was forced to do research on this thing. Uh, all these, I don't know what they're about, but there are uh, uh, tons of them. And I read the blurbs on these books. I would never read this stuff, but I read the blurbs on them, which are their sales pitches, and... <sighs> these people vote. I mean, this is scary. Uh, here, okay... You've always wondered about those ancient mysteries, haven't you? Well, the Nephilim explains it all. Oh, yes. Uh, the Egyptian pyramids, how they get built, couldn't possibly be humans. The Nephilim helped them. Uh, the, how, how those stones get on the Easter Island, huh? What about those stones there? Or, or, or Stonehenge, or on and on and on. And then, of course, the, the, uh, how do you explain those, those, those drawings, the ancient drawings that can only be interpreted from the sky? Well, the giants did that. Or maybe they had a little help from the aliens, of course, and there's, so there's some that. Maybe the Nephilim were aliens. Aliens. Maybe they're still around. In fact, some say they are still around. And they have proof that they're still around. And the government knows. But why are they keeping it secret? Because the government always does that. What if it got out? Well, terrible things could happen. They're evil. They're all, maybe they're in the coups with them. They're plotting the end of the world. That's what they're doing. Yes, they're still around. And they're plotting the, the end of the world. Uh, and and uh, so we need to know about this for reasons I can't yet figure out. Uh, and then once in a while, and I've had this happen, oh, every couple months, a couple times a year anyways, um, someone sends me a photograph of the new evidence of the Nephilim, the archaeological evidence. There you go. Look at that giant guy. Uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Ooh, ah, ah. Oh. Well, see, the other thing is that, that was photoshopped. Yeah, and, and the guy who photoshopped it later admitted it. But not until it had made the circuits, and everyone's like, ooh, ah, and there's a bunch of these out there. Just go Google photographs of giant skeletons, uh, and, and you'll see all, all, all well, they had a contest uh, over in, uh, I, I forget where it was, but they had a contest, a photoshopping contest, and someone did a really impressive photoshop of a giant skeleton, and uh, some folks in uh, Arabia picked it up, and the Muslims also believe in, uh, they have their own version of the ancient giants of old, and it just caused, like, uproar everywhere um, that uh, I, don't, I don't know what people are so excited about but they were convinced that turned finally the person admitted that that had been photoshopped but see folks here's the thing I, and I probably don't need to say this but just in case um, do not waste any money on this stuff and any time on this stuff because this stuff and all the kind of conspiracy theories that are along with it 
It is nothing but, nothing, how do I say it eloquently? It, it, it's, it's just caca. It, 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 it's, it's it's caca. It's caca. It's right up there with the caca of the four blood moons and the caca of, of uh, uh, taking back America for God and the caca of the left behind stuff and the caca of Obama is the Antichrist and the caca of the Illuminati going to take over the world and the caca of the Masons are involved in everything. Uh, it, it, we don't need more caca. We've got enough caca. We're up to our next in caca. We got caca coming out of our ears. We don't need more caca. See, the thing is this, I really think all of this is nothing but one gigantic demonic distraction. It's, it, we've got a job to do, right? We've got a job to do. We've got a calling. Uh, we are called to be the ambassadors of Christ, uh, ministers of reconciliation, people who put on display the love of God to all people at all times, the proclaimers of the good news. We've got a job to do, and we can't get distracted with caca. I mean, folks, in a world where there are thousands of kids sold into sexual slavery, uh, we don't have time for caca. In a world where there's a billion people right now starving to death, we don't have time for caca. In a world where there's homeless folks all around us, and we're called to, 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 to be folks who manifest God's love to serving folks like that, we don't have time for caca. Our plate ought to be filled. If it's not filled, well then put more stuff on it because we're supposed to be 24-7 kingdom people. In a world that is increasingly divided, hostily divided along racial lines and, and gender lines and nationalistic lines and religious lines, political lines, on and on and on. And we're called to be peacemakers. We do not have time for caca. In a, in a world where, 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 yes, amen, amen. We have a job to do. And, and uh, you know, in a world where people are just spiritually hungry, they don't have a clue why they exist. And if there's a spiritual hunger that is there, and Jesus died for these folks, and we're called to introduce Jesus to these folks, in that world, we don't have time for more religious caca. In a time where people are increasingly afraid of the next terrorist attack, uh, and, and how they would love to know a God who can remove all fear from their life and give them a peace that passes understanding. And we're to be the ones to proclaim that we don't have time for this religious caca. We are called to do one thing, and that is to replicate Jesus, to put him on display, to be the body of Christ, to be Jesus to the world, to put his love on display, his character on display, his humility on display, proclaiming the good news, inviting the world to share in it. And, and we've got to keep our eye on that calling. Keep your eye on the target. Uh, don't get distracted with this other stuff. I think part of the reason why people let themselves get distracted with this other stuff, I get caught up into it, spend hours, days, part of their life just researching all this, getting more proof of it, is because that's pretty easy and it's kind of curious and stimulating, whereas actually living in the kingdom costs you something. So see, we're called just to bleed, just to bleed for people, amen? Uh, and don't get distracted. Here's the thing. Even if, because somebody out there listening is saying, oh, but you don't know, you don't know, you don't, the Clins and the Illuminati, they're running the world. I've had people tell me that. Yes, yeah, so they're part of, uh, there's a, a, tw- a table of 12 who run everything. They own almost all the wealth in the world. And we're just their pawns. You know what? Okay, let's say that's true. Yes, it's true. Um, why should I care? Why, why, why should I care? Who gives a rip? I mean, here's the thing. Here's the, here, here's the one true conspiracy theory. Satan is running the world. Satan is the CEO of this whole place, this whole thing. Jesus says he's, he's, he's the commander. He called three times in John, calls him the, the Lord of this world, the ruler of this world. Satan's running the thing. Uh, so, why would I care who he's using to do that? I, I, that's nothing compared to what I already know. Well, even more important than that is I know 
that above Satan is God, and God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he rules history. He's going to win in the end, and we work for him. Yes, we work for him. So don't get distracted with all the caca. That's just, that's just twisted scripture. Second thing is this, and this is not caca. Uh, this is a sincere attempt to try to explain something in the Bible. But I think it's, it's misapplied. It has to do with, I mentioned earlier, Numbers 13. Um, and and uh, here's, here's what happens. The, the children of Israel are out in the wilderness. And they're going to go spy on the promised land. So they send spies out. Spies come back and give this report in Numbers 13. Then Caleb said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than us. And they spread among the Israelites a false report, a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. And remember, in the original, they don't have parentheses. That's inserted by the, uh, the, the translators. The spies are saying this. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And on this basis, some argue this, uh, that the Canaanites were all Nephilim. They were half human and half divine, and that's why God said, go slaughter them all. And it's, a lot of folks know that I have been wrestling with that portrait of God and other similar portraits of God in the Old Testament, commanding genocide. Uh, and, um, and so I've heard this explanation dozens and dozens of times. People saying, well, they're, they're the Nephilim. And so God was basically doing what he, what he did in the flood. They had, they had to go. Now, here's the thing. I completely agree, completely agree that we need to have given account of that genocidal portrait of God in the Old Testament. Yes. And we need to give an account of the flood story and similar violent portraits of God because everything in Scripture is supposed to bear witness to the cross. How does it do that? Very good question. I can't get into it now. Uh, I am... Hopefully before the Illuminati take over the world, I want to get... This book will get out. <laughs> and the Nephilim come and we all turn into pyramids. I, I, hopefully it will get out. Otherwise, it will be a lot of wasted time. But uh, in, in this book that I'm doing, I spent 200 pages about on, on the conquest narrative on that genocidal portrait of God, and on the flood. So when the book comes out, there, you can get the explanation. Right now, I'll just say this. Uh, this. This explanation, that their Nephilim isn't a very plausible one, for several reasons. One is that the reason why God withdrew his spirit and allowed the flood to take place was because he wanted to put a stop to the sons of God uh, cohabitating with the daughters of humans and, and begetting these Nephilim because they were genetically engineering human beings out of existence. If the sons of God did that again, these fallen sons of God... Wouldn't we know about it? Wouldn't we hear about it? And we hear nothing. Secondly, the passage doesn't say that all the Nephilim, or all the Canaanites were Nephilim. There were dozens and dozens of tribes uh, in, in, in the land of Canaan. The Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites, they're all ites. And, and the, 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 so there's a lot of tribes there. Only the descendants of Anak are, are said to be uh, descendants of the Nephilim. So even if you're going to use this passage uh, to show anything, you can't say all the Canaanites were Nephilim. Oh, it was just the, the descendants of Anak. Uh, the third thing is this. this. This report is a bad report. The text says it's a bad report. It can be translated false report. Um, these, are, these are hysterical spies. 
They went and scouted out the land. And the, the Anakites were very tall. In fact, we learned from Genesis and Joshua, or from Deuteronomy and Joshua, that there were several different tribes in Canaan that were unusually tall, at least compared to the Jews, who tend to be rather small. So they, they go and they spy out the land, and they see these very, very tall people, and they freak out. Freak out! So they, they come back, and they give a report. It's a bad report. They spread a rumor. That land will devour us. We are like grasshoppers. They can step on us. They are huge. They're so huge. Super huge. Why? They're descendants of, of the Nephilim. The Nephilim are back. We don't know how they got back. The Nephilim are back. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. Run away. But they're hysterical. That's not a true report. It's a bad report. Don't base anything on that. Caleb, Caleb gives a different assessment. He says, uh, we, we, we can take him. Let's go up there. Let's do it. So these, these spies, you just can't base anything on that. Here's the final uh, point. And this is the most important because it has an application that's bigger than the Nephilim. Um, The truth is, folks, that slaughtering the Canaanites was not God's idea. We read in the account of the conquest, there's about a dozen passages that are like this. Exodus 23. The Lord says to the Israelites, here's my plan. I'm going to send the hornet, or could be any kind of pestilence there, I'll send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. But little by little, I'll drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. That's God's plan. In another place, he says, I, I think I'll just make the land unfruitful. The, 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 the land will vomit them out. They'll have to migrate off the land to find food. He's going to relocate the indigenous population nonviolently. That sounds like a God plan. Um, he'll slowly move them out. Not really quick, because if they abandon the land all at once, well, then the wild brush will grow and the animals will come and it'll be, you know, it'll be too difficult for you. No, so little by little, I'll move them out and I'll move you in. That's God's plan. That's God's plan. And the fact that we have this in Scripture is enough to prove that God didn't want to slaughter the Canaanites. He didn't need to slaughter the Canaanites because they were half human, half divine. They were human. And he didn't want to slaughter them. He, want, he had this peaceful process. No, it raises a very good question. What happened to that plan? What happened? All of a sudden it's, slaughter them all! That's quite a jump. Uh, what happened? And I can't get into that now. Uh, I, I, except to say this. What time is it? Okay, I, I, I'll say this. Um, here's the thing. We read over and over again throughout the Old Testament. God says to his people, if you trust me, you'll never have to fight. Trust me, you'll never use a sword. Just like he always he reminds them of Exodus. Did you have to fight your way out of Egypt? No, he didn't do it. Lift a finger. I'll do it all. Don't worry about it. Just trust me. And over and over again, we see that the Israelites couldn't do that, which is why they kept on fighting. But the very fact that the Lord told them over and over again, if you, if you trust me, you won't fight, is enough to show that when they entered the land wielding their swords, it's because they weren't trusting God. And see, here's the thing. God still, as he always does, he remained faithful to the covenant. He, he, he continued to be their God, and they continued to be his, his uh, he continued to be their God, and they were his people, despite the fact that they couldn't fully trust him, and despite the fact that they rebelliously used the sword. And so by staying in solidarity with them, he starts to look like a warrior God, which is exactly how some of the people see him. He starts to look like a God who's, who's endorsing this stuff, uh, because he's in relationship with the people who are doing it. He starts to bear their sin and therefore take on an appearance that reflects their sin just as he does on Calvary. The ugliness of Calvary isn't the ugliness of God. It's the ugliness of us. But God takes on our ugliness as he bears our sin, you see? And that reveals what God has always been like. And so what we see are 
hints of the cross throughout the, the Bible. Okay, now I'm talking about my book. You guys put me in all these different directions. You're taking advantage of my ADD. Now stop it. I got to get back to the point. All right, so pay attention here. Okay, so uh, anyways, just, just remember this. That uh, uh, the slaughtering of the Canaanites was not God's idea. And uh, the fact that they got slaughtered well, that was not because they were Nephilim. They were humans. It was tragic. But that's because the Israelites could not trust God. So the final thing I want to do now is this. What can we learn from this bizarre, strange, kind of gross episode of the fallen angels cohabitating with human beings? Watch out for angels who are going to try to rape you. Uh, now, in a sense, that, that could be a lesson. But here, here's the, there's a number of things I think that could be said about that. But here's the main one, the most important one, I think. The episode of the angels becoming human and having sex with these, the daughters of humans, it's all about... Boundary crossing. Lines being crossed that should never be crossed. Uh, the barrier between the fallen angels and humans. Humans had gotten themselves, because they're, they only thought evil continually, they made themselves vulnerable. Uh, the barrier between them and the fallen angels uh, was torn down, and now this happens, and it creates these mutant hybrid creatures. And the, at the very least, it must tell us that we have got to be a people who, by virtue of the way we live, we make sure that we keep the barriers up. Uh, Barriers that keep us from the influence of fallen angels. Because here's the truth. And this is, uh, this is something that's very easy for us in our Western world uh, to forget. That according to the New Testament, this, we, we live in a toxic spiritual environment all the time. This entire world, according to the New Testament, has been enveloped by Satan and other forces of evil. It's been engulfed by Satan and other forces of evil. That's why Satan whom Jesus says comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. That's all he does. Only to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan is, as I said before, the ruler of this world. He uses this term archon, which means boss, basically, CEO. The boss of this world at the present time is Satan. He, and he only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Three times Jesus calls him that. And then he's called the God of this age, the God of this world, by Paul. He's called the, the, the primary ruler of the atmosphere, uh, according to Paul. Uh, John says that, that he controls the entire world. Uh, this world, we'd like to think of the world as a happy place. Everything's fine. But in fact, it is, it, it is a war zone. And we are enveloped by these spirits all the time. That's, that, that they're part of the air we breathe. They're part of the atmosphere. And see, here's the thing. Just as the fallen angels prior to the flood were trying to genetically engineer human beings out of existence, well, there are powers now. These same eight fallen angels are trying to spiritually engineer the kingdom out of existence. Just as before the fall, these fallen angels, uh, because they crossed the line and trying to genetically engineer human beings out of existence, they create these hybrid mutant beings that are only half of what God created human beings to be. So also, there are powers at work right now, all the time, that are trying to genetically engineer Jesus followers out of existence in order to make us mutant kingdom people or hybrid kingdom people. People are only half of what God created us to be and half of what Jesus saved us to be. Uh, we live in this toxic environment. And so we, we need to know that um, there's a roaring lion out there, as Peter says, seeking to devour us. Uh, and that means we've got to live in a way that keeps the barriers between their influence and us up all the time. To walk with an awareness that there are spiritual agents out there who would love to kill, steal, and destroy your identity in Christ. Who would love to devour your identity, your, your, your inheritance in Christ. Who would love to devour your joy and kill your peace and steal your love and undermine your trust in God. There are principalities and powers out there who would just love to 
cause us to make an idol of our nationality or an idol of our, of our achievements or an idol of our wealth or an idol of our religion or an idol of our political opinions or what have you to get our source of life from someplace other than Christ and thereby reduce us to be mutant kingdom people, hybrid kingdom people. Oh, we've got one foot in, but we've got one foot out. You see, compromising the kingdom DNA that is within us. We have to walk with an awareness that there are at all times principalities and powers that are, are trying to tempt us to pursue ungodly pleasures or tempt us to pursue wealth and fame and fortune, uh, cause us to pursue all distractions, anything that can keep us from being the kingdom people that God has created us to be. We've got to walk with an awareness that there are principalities and powers out there in the atmosphere that we live in that are constantly trying to blow apart the human community, to divide the human community according to political lines or religious lines or gender lines or class lines or socioeconomic lines, racial lines, whatever they can use, they'll do to cause human beings to turn on one another so we won't be turning on them. And there are powers out there, we've got to be aware of this, that are always trying to, to kill, steal, and destroy our families, our marriages, our churches, our communities, our nation, and ultimately the world. And see, painting this picture is kind of ominous, I'll grant you that. But it, it, it just means that we, in, in the power of the Spirit, have got to draw clear lines in the sand. And where we say, we ain't going to be no mutants, we're not going to be no hybrids, we ain't no Nephilim, we're going to be kingdom people. We're not going to allow allow these powers to compromise our identity in Christ. And it is an ominous picture. We don't like to think of this too often. But here's the thing. If we know who we are in Christ, uh, though it's ominous, it should never cause fear in our hearts. Amen? Uh, Because we know we're loved by God, and we love God, and perfect love drives out all fear. Amen? So there's no place for fear. Our motivation for keeping these barriers up isn't like, oh, be very afraid. There's a tando coming and we don't want them to get us. No, no, that's not the key to the attitude. Uh, we have a boldness in Christ. But in perfect love drives out fear. We're to be fearless in this. But we also need to be aware. Not only that, but we have the Spirit. We have the Spirit within us. And the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Praise God. Yeah, there's a roaring lion out there trying to devour you, but thank God you've got, you've got a, a, a way bigger lion inside of you. Amen? And, and uh, so there's room for confidence in, in, in this. And finally, Paul gives us this promise, the promise of God, when he says that, um, and I love this one, Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing, neither height nor death, nor principalities or powers, neither things present nor things to come, nor, nor, neither famine nor pearl nor sword, not Satan, not principalities and powers, not the Nephilim. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's our identity. Yes. That should be our core identity. That's our security. It's the only security we need. Whatever happens to us, this remains true. So there's no place for fear. But out of, us, out of a place of confidence and boldness and fearlessness, Here's where we need to take a stand. And we got to draw clear lines in the sand. Put up some barricades where we say to the enemy, beyond this you cannot come. Uh, get thee behind me, Satan. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee. And this is how we resist the devil. You just put up the lines. You say, I will not be compromised. The DNA will not be watered down. I'm not going to be turned into a mutant. I will not be a half-breed. I will not be a Nephilim. I commit to being a 100%, totally completed, completely unqualifiably a kingdom person who follows Jesus. Amen? And there's no watering down here. And so it really raises the question, folks, is, is are we walking with the wall, with a wall, with a barricade? Uh, do we remember that we are in a war zone? And that there are things shooting us. And part of their power, in fact, a large part of their power is their subtlety. Uh, we get transformed. And, you know, the humans before the flood, they didn't just wake up in the morning and, think, and, and say, hey, let's just think evil all the time. 
No, they, they slowly degenerated to that. And that's what made them vulnerable to the influence of these, these fallen sons of God. Uh, what's on our mind all the time? Uh, they had evil on their mind. Can we have the kingdom on our mind? Christ on our mind? The call of God on our life? Uh, on our mind all the time? Um, you know, the, the, the Nephilim, I think, are, are, are gone. But I may be wrong, and I don't care. Maybe they're in cahoots with the Clintons and the Illuminati. I, I don't give a rip. Um, but the sons of God, the fallen sons of God, they are certainly still around. And we need to walk with that awareness. Not out of fear, but just out of, out of confidence, but aware. And drawing this boundary, this line. So I want to take a moment here. And you can close your eyes if you want. You don't have to. But I'm just going to ask this question. And this is a question that is convicting for me. It probably would be convicting for a lot of us. And it's just this. Are we, are we saying yes to the things of God and no to all the stuff that the, the fallen sons of God are pulling us towards? Are we saying yes to generosity and no to greed? Are we saying yes to self-sacrifice and no to the powers that try to pull us towards selfishness? Are we saying yes to faithfulness and no to the powers that are pulling us towards temptation? Will you draw a line in the sand and say no to everything that pulls you in the direction of idolatry and say yes to the Spirit who's pulling us to get all of our life all the time from Christ? And say no to the powers pulling us towards apathy, but yes to the powers pulling us to caring about the lost and caring about the poor, caring about folks that are hurting. Can we say no to everything that pulls us in the direction of bitterness and hatred and yes to everything that pulls us in the direction of love? No to every element of violence in our life and yes to everything that builds peace. Are there areas of your life that are Nephilim? In your thoughts, in your actions, in your relationships, in your priorities, any aspects that are mutant from a kingdom perspective? Are you a hybrid in any respect? And just let the Holy Spirit reveal to you what maybe needs to be revealed. Things that are not aligned with the kingdom of God. Lines that have been crossed that should never have been crossed. Are there Nephilim aspects to your life, to your thought, to your priorities, where you invest yourself? And when the Holy Spirit reveals something there, when you see something, I encourage you not to get into a conversation about it in your own head. But just say, Lord, I want that to go. I, I, I want to draw a line in the sand. And empower me to draw a line right now that says no to that. Because I want to say 100% yes to you. I do not want to be compromised, watered down, a mutant hybrid of the kingdom. I want to be 100% kingdom. And ask God to help you turn from it. In fact, do what God did back in the day. Bury it in a flood. <laughs> Bury it in a flood. It's let it be gone. Holy Spirit, will you hear, show us what we need to see, reveal what needs to be revealed, empower us in ways that we need to be empowered to turn from whatever is Nephilim about us in order to embrace all that you have for us. We don't want to be half of what you created us and saved us to be. We want to be all that you created us and saved us to be. We cannot do it on our own for our own willpower. 
only by your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, do your work. And, and just, you know, if, if there's a significant thing here that maybe, it's, maybe, maybe you've got a giant you're dealing with. Um, I ask you, I encourage you in the power of God, know that you can't take down that giant on your own, but God can. And if you're seriously committed to drawing a line in the sand, I encourage you to tell someone about that. We need to be sharing our life. We can't change on our own. We always need the help of others. With God in our life and also the help of the community. Tell someone and ask them to help you walk this out. Thank you, God, for making us to be a people who know who you are and for giving us this kingdom assignment, this kingdom message. Thank you for calling us to be warriors, for empowering us to be warriors. Help us to be wise. Help us to be vigilant. Staying awake. Never letting fear get in. Always operating out of a center of confidence. For we commit to being all that you have called us and saved us and created us to be. In Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees with that would say, Amen, Amen. Would you stand? I'd like to call a prayer team uh, up here. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, maybe it's the giant that you just saw. Maybe it's something totally different. But come up here and pray with these folks. Or if you want to be, uh, learn what it is to be a Jesus follower, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to get you started on that. As you leave here, do it with a commitment to be sold out to the kingdom. Don't let anything compromise you in Jesus' name. And go out and love on the world. God bless you. Love you.